How do historians know what's true? Do they write up whatever sounds good to them? Or do they listen to legends or whatever else do they do? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805, where you can learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. So let's get started on our lesson topic for today, which is, How do historians determine truth? Before we begin, this lesson is part of a four-part foundational series, How Truth and History Confirm That We Can Trust the Christian Bible. The four lessons in this series are, number one, what is truth and how historical truth relates to religious truth. Number two, how do historians determine truth? That's what we're on today. And this is why geography, archaeology, artifacts, and documents matter. Number three, how is the historical truth of the Christian Bible unique? Part one, this is a comparison of the Christian Bible with the Hindu and Buddhist scriptures. And number four, how is the historical truth of the Christian Bible unique? Part two, and this is a comparison with Muslim and the Mormon scriptures. First, we might ask, why does it matter how historians determine what is true? In the previous lesson, we talked about the importance of truth and how truth is is that which corresponds to reality. We then talked about how history is a useful way to determine what corresponds to reality and how this is foundational to determining if a religion is true. But how do historians go about figuring out what corresponds to reality? Obviously, we don't have time machines. We can't go back to the events themselves. So what are the things that historians look at as they evaluate the truth of Scripture. They look at very tangible evidence. Just like a CSI, a crime scene investigator, a good historian carefully examines the evidence before making conclusions. He or she should not have a predetermined bias before examining the evidence. For example, when evaluating prophecy, you shouldn't date events after the prophecy simply because you believe predictive prophecy isn't possible. If you do that, you have an anti-supernatural bias and you really aren't being objective. You aren't looking at the facts. You should look at the evidence and then draw conclusions. The categories for historical evidence that testify to the truth of the Bible are geography, archaeology, artifacts, and documents. And we're going to look briefly at each one of them. First of all, geography. Are the places talked about in the scripture of a religion real places? Can we find them on a map, new or old? A story about something that took place in Atlantis, for example, lacks the credibility of something that happened in Bethlehem in Judea. You might think this is a really obvious requirement, but not every faith system has identifiable places, past or present, where key events of the faith took place. There is a reason that our Christian Bible has maps, and the scriptures of some other religions do not. Once the geography is determined, then archaeology goes to work. Once we determine that the events described in a scripture happen in a specific place, we should then be able to go to that place and find evidence of what they said. For example, we read in the Bible about a sermon the Apostle Paul preached at the Areopagus in Athens, Greece. And today, you can go to the Areopagus, and there are some stone seats there, and various 
you know, touristy things also, I'm sure. But there's also a plaque describing that this is where Paul's sermon took place 2,000 years ago. Archaeology also helps us date what happened in a particular location. And dating is incredibly important for confirming biblical prophecy and trustworthiness overall. Now there next we're going to talk about two categories of archaeology. These are my um, really um, professional labels. Um, the big stuff. Um, cities, buildings, roads, etc. And then the little stuff. Statues, artifacts, pottery, and coins. So first of all the big stuff. Buildings and all of that. Now this is this is really exciting and it's only actually been in the last few hundred years that we have discovered and unearthed many very exciting things. In terms of biblical history, I'm going to give you a broad overview here. When we get to the individual books, I'll share many examples, and there will also be images in the Bible 805 Academy. In the podcast version, obviously, of this material, obviously, I can't show you pictures. I will describe them as well as I can, and I think you'll get a good overall idea. But if you want to go into much more detail on that, that's why I put together the Bible 805 Academy, and there are links to that on the Bible 805 website, www.bible805.com. But let's charge ahead. Here's one example of an archaeological find that is really astounding. This concerns Sennacherib, who was an Assyrian ruler. He conquered northern Israel in 722, and he was turned away from Jerusalem by God's intervention in 701, when Hezekiah was king and Isaiah was the primary prophet. Now, Sennacherib's palace, it was quite legendary, but it was actually first excavated by a gentleman named Austrian Henry Lanyard in 1845. And it, it, you can go to the ruins today, it's part of the ancient city of Nineveh near modern-day Mosul. Now, his palace, just the palace alone. Now, Nineveh covered many acres and they're still, you know, trying to excavate it, although with all the different turmoil, it's been kind of hard and things have gotten messed up. But the palace itself, just Sennacherib's palace, was 1,480 feet long and 720 feet wide. Now, I calculated it out. That is the size of almost five football fields. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Home sweet home, five football fields. It was absolutely massive. And in addition to the overall palace, uh, there are many, many artifacts that confirm the Bible story. And the, the story is about Sennacherib and about the Assyrians that tell us so much. There's one particular piece that is fascinating. You'll see bits and pieces on it all over the web if you, you look up anything on Assyria or whatever. The specific thing is what are called the Lachish Reliefs, L-A-C. H-I-S-H. If you want to just Google that, it is fascinating. Now these are carvings that were carved in gypsum gypsum wall panels and they're from the palace and there are these huge panels of them that were the facing of a large room. Now there's various discussions on whether this was a waiting room 
be for people to wait in before they saw him or whether it was part of his private quarters or whatever. But this commemorates what life was like and his capture of the city of Lachish, which the Bible talks about. And again, there are um, pictures and more discussion on this on the Bible 805 um, Academy. But this is really interesting. Austin Henry Layard, the man who uh, discovered it in his book, Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon, in 1853, he described it in this way. He said, here, therefore, was the actual picture of the taking of Lachish, the city as we know from the Bible besieged by Sennacherib when he sent his generals to demand tribute of Hezekiah, which he had captured before their return, evidence of the most remarkable character to confirm the interpretation of the inscriptions and to identify the king who caused them to be engraved with the Sennacherib of scripture. This highly interesting series of bas-reliefs contain, moreover, an undoubted representation of a king, a city, and a people, with whose names we are acquainted, and of an event described in Holy Writ. Basically, he's saying, this is just an incredible illustration of what happened in the Bible. And then you learn so much about the Assyrians from these panels, and a lot of it isn't particularly pleasant. Um, War was extremely important to them. You just see... uh, you know, just these huge, and these aren't little, I mean, they were huge, you know, again, this one panel alone was 39 feet long, 16 feet high, I mean, that's, that's gigantic, and there were, uh, there were ones like this all around this room, but you see many things of the importance of war to them, many, many things about war, and how incredibly cruel they were. You see beheadings, you see piles of skulls, you see them skinning people alive, you see them impaling people, you see torture. They were not nice people. And in addition to just confirming what happened at this one event in scripture, when we see things like this, we understand many other things in the Bible about that the Bible writes about. For example, how because of how cruel they were now earlier than this particular panel took place, but we have earlier materials about them, and they were the same sort of people. When we see this, we can understand why Jonah did not want to go there. (laughs) You know, he didn't want to go to these people. He'd heard what they were like, and um, he, he didn't want to go there. He certainly didn't want them to repent. He wanted God to just destroy them. And when we see this, we understand why. But then after God had had enough of them, It's really interesting to see then the description of what happens to Nineveh in Nahum chapter 1, where it says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. And that is just an exact description of what these panels look like. And also, too, just as a little thing, um, the Assyrians and, and throughout all kinds of archaeology and everything else, they were just obsessed with lions and the royalty defeating them. And it's 
when you realize that, you see the reliefs on the walls about this. Nahum 2.13 makes so much sense where the prophet Nahum says, I am against you. The sword will devour your young lions. And at the end of the book, the prophet concludes, nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? So this is just one example. There are many of them where, again, archaeology not only confirms that, yes, this city existed, this king existed, these events happened, but we learn so much more about the people, and it gives us a greater understanding of what the biblical writers wrote about. And then in the New Testament, there is just an absolute abundance of of evidence. Um, Everyone has seen in their history books and all of that. We have the ruins of Rome, of Greece, of the cities of Asia Minor, all of the different places where events took place in the New Testament. They're still, the ruins of them are still standing today. And many of them are exactly as described by Dr. Luke in Acts and in the Gospel of Luke. Not only, again, do we see real places, but the events that happened in them happened in the way the Bible talks about. The types of government, the key people, their religions, the idols they worshipped, all of these things are verified archaeologically, very well documented archaeologically. And not only the places, but the people. And this is really kind of interesting to me. I thought, you know, people never change. Uh, Today, we're constantly taking pictures of ourselves, of family members. The desire to record people how we look or want to look was really no different in the past. The access to do that, though, wasn't as widespread as it is today. Most often, it was primarily leaders and uh, government officials and, you know, famous athletes and whatever. Uh, They were the ones that were, we see a lot of statues of them, but we can see what they look like. And uh, the Greeks had a very realistic style of sculpture. And for example, there are numerous images, and I have one on the, in the Bible 805 Academy, of Nero who had both Peter and Paul martyred, we know what he looked like. And to me, that's just astounding when we study archaeology and we can see that. And not only of him, but archaeology has discovered many statues and images of characters talked about in the Bible, kings and pharaohs and emperors. And again, when we get to the individual lessons, you can date a biblical uh, event and then look at who was the pharaoh? Who did Joseph stand in front of? Who did Moses stand in front of? We can look at these things and it is really exciting to do that. Then let's move on from the big stuff to the little stuff. Pottery and coins, why they're so important. Well, pottery and coins help us really then narrow down for specific dating of different documents that might have been found with them. Pottery and coins are the two important areas. For example, in many instances, archaeology discovered collections of documents like the Dead Sea Scrolls in pottery. And so if they weren't actually in the pottery, pottery was often found at the archaeological site. So you can get a pretty good idea of the date of the manuscript by dating the pottery. Now, you might be thinking, 
well, how do you date pottery? You know, how did, how did they do that? Well, I got to thinking about it. And, you know, it's just really easy. It's just like today. You know, again, many things do not change. And some of the things that we think are real esoteric and, you know, just for experts, they're not. They just know more about this than some other stuff. Uh, let me go back to the thing of pottery. If I go to a secondhand store, I can tell immediately what dishes were made in the 1970s. Um, there's this olive green style of Franciscan dinnerware that uh, many people had, and there's a lot of them in thrift stores today, and I know exactly when that was put together. Also, too, I quite love uh, mid-century dishes, and I have a set of dishes that have this mid-century star pattern on them that are just absolutely wonderful, but you, they look like mid-century dishes. I can t- I could tell right when I first saw them, approximately when they were put together. People that are into depression glass, um, or more contemporary ones, like the unbreakable white Corel dishes. We, it's really easy if you set... Uh, a piece of the the dinnerware from the 70s, a mid-century piece, and the contemporary Corel, there wouldn't be, you know, anybody that knew anything about dishes would be able to tell you, oh, this is when this was done, this was when that was done. Well, of course, archaeologists, they're into slightly different things. The pottery styles, uh, for example, we know that the Philistines from about 1200 to 1000 BC, they had lots of images of seafaring people. And so we know their pottery and we also know that they were seafaring people and that's how they got to the coast of Israel. Um, as we get closer to the time of Christ, the black and red glazed pottery that we often see of pictures in Greek history, you see that, you know, we sort of identify that with Greek history, that at during that time, that was really popular. Now, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were only found, were found, excuse me, were found in pottery that was only at one other place in the archaeological digs in the whole overall area, that was Qumran, which was one of the reasons they tied the scrolls to that community. So it's really not difficult for someone who has studied these different styles and is familiar with them to date them, to identify where they came from any more than it is for me to go into a thrift store and pick out 70s dishes. Coins also help date documents. Again, people are just as messy and careless through the ages as they are today. Today we find change in between sofa cushions. Archaeologists find coins scattered in rooms around documents. They're just all over the place in archaeological digs. And they're important for dating because the emperors and other rulers usually had their image stamped on their coins when they came to power. Therefore, if you found a cave with coins stamped with the image of Caesar Augustus and earlier emperors, but none of the later ones, you could say that the manuscript or the objects in that cave were most likely placed there probably around the time Augustus was emperor. And it follows then that the documents would have to have been written prior to that time. Just kind of makes sense. Here's the coins, you know, whatever. And so they use that quite a lot. And that's consistent with what we find and how it helps date the documents. All of these tangible areas form the historical foundation for evaluating documents that we call source criticism. 
Now, source criticism doesn't mean evaluating if a written document is good or not. It means to evaluate the data surrounding its creation, its source, in these areas. We want to find out the date that it was written, and this is so important because everything else depends on that. It helps you determine authorship. Did the purported writer live at that time? Now, there was a practice in the ancient world and all the way, well, I guess it still continues today, but where someone would claim someone was the writer of a document to give it more credibility, but they didn't really write it, and the way you can know that is if you, for example, date a document that was probably written around 300 AD, and it says this is a Gospel of Thomas, which is exactly what we find, and we know if it was truly dated around 300 AD, and we're going to talk about this a whole lot more when we get to how we got our Bible and the different books and dating them, but that that's coming in another lesson. But if um, we know that this was dated quite a bit later, it obviously couldn't have been written by the Apostle Thomas. So uh, you find this all the way through different documents. However, if something says that, you know, for example, with Luke, we all the things that are in it, if they lead us to date it about the time, uh, you know, prior to 50 AD, prior to the time that Paul was killed, we, we can we go, well, you know, probably Luke did write it. So this is really, really important. Also, the credibility of the author. Again, if the person actually lived at that time is so important because we the closer they are to the actual events, the more trustworthy they are. And then um, just the overall reliability of all the sources. Again, this whole thing of were they close to the events or is ju this just a legend that was passed down for hundreds of years? That's one of the uh, often the criticisms of Christianity. Oh, well, people wrote all this stuff about Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years later and we don't really know. Oh, that's just absolutely not true. Anybody that objectively looks at any of the source criticism, how the documents were evaluated for the dates written, and all of those sorts of things. You, you can't say that. It's, it's, just, it's just blatantly false. Now, just because you accept it, I say this many times and I'll say it again, that doesn't mean that you immediately say, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior, but you can't be accusing the Christian faith of being based on false historical evidence when it just wasn't. We can trust the documents. Then the authenticity or corruption of the text. This is really important. How do we know the text hasn't changed after years of copying? Well, let's now look at some of these areas. We need to date, we're going to go back through all the things I just kind of went over. First, on dating the manuscript itself, because again, when something was written is really foundationally important. If something was written close to the time the events are recorded, we're much more likely to believe the account than something written hundreds of years later. If we know the authors lived when the events took place, particularly if their lives are verified by other sources, again, it's much more likely the events are true as opposed to someone hundreds of years later writing down legends. So how do we date documents? Now here are some questions that historians ask. 
where was the document found and what was it found with? Was it found in the area written about? And can we verify the geography of the time it was written? Now, we already talked about how we have discovered these different cities and things like that. But the cities listed in the document, are they where it describes that they were? For example, Luke talks about Rome. <laughs> well, we know Rome was there. Um, so that's really important. What was found with them? What are the dates of the pottery, the coins, the other artifacts around them? But what about the documents themselves. How can we tell how old they are and when they were written? In addition to what surrounds them or where they were found, can you date documents by simply looking at them, simply examining the document itself? And yes, you can. And again, it's not that difficult. I know before I studied this, I used to think, oh, that must be really hard. How do they date things? But once you study it, it just isn't hard at all. For the podcast, I'm going to describe this process. And there are, a lot, there are images of all of the things I'm talking about, again, in the Bible 805 Academy uh, lessons. But if I showed you, just imagine, I'm going to show you two newspapers. One of them is a paper is really yellowed and it's really fancy script and there aren't any pictures in it. It's just black print on kind of yellowed paper. And then there's another one on white paper and there are lots of colored pictures and there's a lot more just sort of uh, really easy to read printing. Just looking at those two pictures and I, what if I ask you which one was printed in 2020? Well, it doesn't take a scholar at all to realize the one on white paper with the colored pictures was the one that was printed in 2020. Because all newspapers in the past were printed with only black ink. Now, you may not know the exact date, but it wasn't until USA Today pioneered four-color newspaper printing in 1982 that since then we we all you know there's colored pictures on all of our newsletters so just knowing that seeing something in color it's very easy to date it the paper itself also looks different its base color is still white the one that has the pictures as opposed to the yellowing that you've all seen of old newsprint the style of the prints changed from really ornate to more simple type now the date is printed on each one of these two examples that I'm showing you one was printed in 1928 and one in 2020 and they're both I believe in German but I'm not sure they're in, in a language other than English but just by looking at them you you can tell which one is more recent. Now biblical scholars of course go into much much more detail but it's the same basic process. They know how documents were constructed during a certain time and they base them based they date them based on that. Now in some cases they do use carbon 14 dating but it really isn't necessary in most instances. Now here are some of the criteria how color was used, how the letters was formed, what it was either written or printed on. Now, first of all, the most important there, one of the most important is what is the manuscript on? What's the substrate or whatever you want to call it? There are two things that were used in the past. The first one was papyrus. Now this was the earliest paper used. It was made of reeds of the papyrus plant that were pounded out 
and they were set kind of cross to each other and then pounded flat and then rubbed smooth and that was the earliest thing that they wrote on. Now what's so great about that is you can actually just by looking at them you can kind of see the cross hatching of how the paper was built. So it's really easy to identify. The next one is parchment or vellum. Now that was made actually from animal skins and um, it uh, was a lot a lot uh, more expensive to make and it was only used from about the 300s on. Papyrus though was used from the earliest days of manuscript writing um, until around the 200s. It was still used later but if something is in papyrus you know that it probably was earlier. Then how are the letters themselves constructed? Before actually around the 8th century all the letters are the same size and the same height. That's called uncial. That's um, entirely in capital letters. They were all just all the same capital letters all the way across. And um, it wasn't again until about the 8th century that the type of writing called minuscule where you have upper and lower case came into being. So if you see something all capital letters um, you know that it was earlier than something that we would see in upper and lower case. Now word spacing also. All of the early manuscripts, all the words run together. You just see all these lines of letters. I don't know how they did it. Um, I am not a Greek and Hebrew scholar, but apparently because of the way the language is constructed and the grammar that obviously they could read it, but that's how all of them are. And then illumination, where you see those fancy capital letters and drawings and all that, that was not until much, much later in the monasteries. Again, the images on the 805 Academy, I, I'm sorry if I keep repeating this, um, you can see them. But I think just my descriptions really help you. The manuscripts themselves, though, aren't the only criteria we use to date them. What are then, we might ask, some of the additional verification that the New Testament documents were written close to the events that they recorded? It's really kind of similar, I got to thinking about it, how we rank social media today. The more likes or interactions a post gets today, the more popular it is, the more it's passed on, we know who wrote it, when they wrote it, etc. Evaluating past documents is similar. If something was considered important and may be true, many people outside the original author would comment on it. It would be quoted, discussed, argued about. And that was the case as evidenced by many, many contemporary, contemporary writings at the same time the New Testament documents were written. And there are two groups that are worth noting just very briefly. One, the Church Fathers, and second, the critics of Christianity. Now, the Church Fathers. After the Christian Church was founded, early Church leaders, who we now call the Church Fathers, wrote extensively about how the Bible came to be written, who wrote it, when it was written, they quoted it, they wrote a lot about it. For example, one of the neatest ones is the Apostle Paul had a disciple named Polycarp. 
And Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus, and he wrote about how the uh, some of the Gospels came to be. Uh, Eusebius tells us that Irenaeus wrote that he personally heard Polycarp tell of conversations with John and the rest of those who had seen the Lord. Can you imagine? talking to somebody who had actually known Jesus. And I, I, as I thought about this, it reminded me of how powerful it can be, how powerful a personal recollection can be. Um, many, many years ago, I had an English professor who had gone to Cambridge when C.S. Lewis taught there. Now, when I found that out, um, I was so excited and I wanted to know about him. I said, oh, tell me about, you know, what was he like? And he goes, well, he says, yeah, I, I didn't have anything to do with him. He said, oh, he said, he was a dangerous man. People would get to know him and their lives were changed. And I thought, without meaning to, what a powerful witness of of uh, how C.S. Lewis affected people. And I I think, you know, of course, this is just a, a little story about a human. But again, can you imagine the stories Polycarp heard from John about Jesus? Remember, John tells us that many more things happened than he recorded in the gospel. And I'm sure Polycarp heard about many of those. And then these church fathers wrote down uh, various things and they wrote also too well John wrote this down and we have a lot more written evidence about who wrote what and when they wrote it. We have not only the writings from those positive to the Christian faith but some of the really interesting verification that we have comes from people who were critics of it. For example, documenting the concerns for hurting people in the early church, um, numerous enemies of the Christianity, and this one that I'll talk about in just a minute, would say things like, not only do they take care of their own poor, but ours as well. And Julian the Apostate was the one who, who said this, and he was very antagonistic to Christianity, and he he tried so hard to reverse what the Christians had done, but he just couldn't do it because he said, you know, they just do all these good things and, and the pagan priests, they don't do them, they don't care, but this is what the Christians did. He tried so hard to reverse the acceptance of Christianity, but it didn't work. And he wrote extensively about his frustration. And then there is also the apocryphal story that as he died, he flung his blood into the air, shouting, Galilean, you have conquered. Now, we don't know the truth of that statement about his death, but his writings do tell us a lot about the early church. And there's additional negative criticism. Uh, what the negative authors don't realize is that they confirm many of the facts of what happened. Though they don't agree to the source of it, they don't say it's divine, they verify, again, what happened. Porphyry, an early critic of the faith, claimed that the disciples based their writings on hearsay because only Matthew and John were eyewitnesses, whereas Luke and Mark based their writings on the testimony of others. That's precisely what the Bible and church history tells us. He affirms the eyewitness account of Matthew and John and the source for Mark and Luke of their material for their Gospels. Celsius is another person who wrote extensively criticizing the Christian church and Origen uh, 
we actually know of his writings because Origen quoted them, and I won't go into all the theological debates he got into, but what is really interesting is Celsius writes extensively about the miracles of Jesus, and he does not deny they happened, but he just says that they were because of sorcery. He goes, well, he, he did do this, and he did do that, and he did, but, but it was because of sorcery. So you see, it's, it's very interesting how even in their criticism, they confirm the dating and the actions. The conclusion is that there are thousands of manuscripts, plus the testimony of friends and critics that all affirm New Testament reliability. And many of you have seen the chart that talks about how, that shows how we only have a limited number of manuscripts of materials that we consider totally factual about the ancient world, about Homer and Herodotus and Plato and Caesar, but then of the New Testament, how we have over 5,000 manuscripts that come within 50 years of when they were they were first written and the others the gap between when they were first written and the copies that we have for most of them it's over a thousand years and what that is 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 those are copies that are found in the medieval monasteries but we have very very accurate very current very trustworthy copies of new testament manuscripts and again, in addition to just the manuscripts themselves, we have thousands and thousands of pages of writings of the church fathers, church historians, and even critics that verify the New Testament writings and date them at very early times. But then there's another question, and that is, were the text corrupted? Have the texts of the Christian church been copied and recopied so many times they're no longer true to their original? What does the evidence, what does history show us objectively in answer to this question? And this is really important because many Christians ask it and many critics of the Christian faith. In fact, this, is, this question is foundational to the Mormon challenge to the historic Christian faith because Joseph Smith's judgment on the validity of the Bible was he said that the King James could be used only insofar as it was correctly translated. And there is a common Mormon assertion that follows that the Bible can't be trusted because it was recopied and recopied so many times and is no longer accurate. So this is really important because in Mormon theology, then that's why Joseph Smith said that the Book of Mormon was needed as a later revelation. We'll talk a lot more about the validity of Mormon scriptures in part four of this series, but that is a valid question and we need to answer it. So here's how we answer it. Well, <laughs> surprise, um, it's answered by historical evidence. And that evidence is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Many people have heard of them, but they have no idea why they're such a big deal where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947 in caves near Qumran, a village about 20 miles east of Jerusalem on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. Now, they include manuscripts or fragments of every book in the Hebrew Bible except the Book of Esther. All of them were created, now this is important, nearly 1,000 years earlier than any previously known biblical manuscripts. It follows 
or manuscript, I should say, I should clarify that, manuscripts of, complete manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible. It follows that we can compare them to current manuscripts and answer definitively if copying over the thousand years of intervening history has changed them. And first, we need to confirm, though, the dating of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Were they really written a thousand years earlier than the manuscripts that we have? And yes, they are. They were one of the things that was verified by carbon-14 dating and also by the archaeological dating of pottery and coins from about 150 to 100 AD. Also the style of writing, also the substrate that they were printed on, all of the things that I talked about, we accurately date them around 150 to 100 AD. Now what then is their significance? When compared with the medieval manuscripts, the Old Testament manuscripts that are the result of over 1,000 years of copying, 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 the Dead Sea Scrolls are 95% identical with the medieval manuscripts upon which our current Bibles are based. The 5% difference is in minor spelling and scribal errors. The conclusion is that over 1,000 years of copying from the Dead Sea Scrolls documents to the ones from medieval libraries, there is almost no change. And our Bibles today are translations from the ones in the medieval libraries. Of course, they've been updated for changing language, etc. This shows definitively for anyone with an open mind, that corruption, wherein the contents were changed or modified or we lost the original meaning, absolutely did not happen. The conclusion, history is a powerful witness to the truth of the Christian faith and to the truth of our scriptures. We've looked at how historians determine what is true through geography, archaeology, artifacts and document evidence. We've seen that this historical evidence is not an esoteric hidden or a field that requires any advanced intelligence to understand. It's really pretty simple. We verify locations, giant buildings, and then the little stuff, coins, pottery, thousands of manuscripts that are all easy to date. They all show that the events of the Christian Bible are true, that the people lived where and when it claims they did, and did what the Bible says they did. And the overwhelming conclusion is that based on all these areas, we can trust the historical, factual content of the Bible. Historical verification is a foundation. It's still a long way from asserting God as the author of the Bible and believing everything in it, and even a longer way from putting your trust in Jesus as your personal Savior. But it's very hard to even begin that journey if you can't trust the documents about the Christian faith and Jesus to be historically accurate. But it's a great start. But there's one more question. What about other religions? Do they have the same historical verification? That is what our two lessons that are coming are all about, and I think you'll find the answers fascinating. That's all for now. 
If the podcast has been useful to you, please support it through your donations and prayers. For how to do that, plus notes from this lesson, related resources, and helpful links, go to www.bible805.com. In closing, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.